Well, we're in chapter 25 of our study of 1 Samuel. We're nearing the end of this book. Uh, we still have a few more chapters to go, but we'll go right into 2 Samuel, uh, where the focus is on David. And I'll remind you of a couple of things here. These last uh, chapters of Samuel, 1 Samuel, um, are about David as a fugitive, as you know, running from Saul and so on. But as we um, have been arguing, and I think that's clear, God is using uh, this opportunity in David's life to do two things. Number one, to develop his character, and number two, to grow his faith in the Lord. And he has to learn David's life is like your life and my life. It's like this. It's up and down. And one of the points of chapter 25 is it starts as kind of a down, but it it, it ends with kind of a triumph. David learns something here. And that's kind of what I want to want to zero in on. And the vehicle for him learning the lesson God wants him to, uh, to learn is a woman. Her name is Abigail. She is the wife of a fool. And that's his name, Nabal, which means fool in Hebrew. So it's, an, it's, an, it's a very important story, but it also tells us something else. Look at verse 1. It's a transitional verse. It's a verse that helps us to understand the end of one era, the beginning of another era. The death of Samuel. Now Samuel died. It's a fact. It doesn't detail anything, doesn't explain how or or when, or he's old, so undoubtedly it's just the, the effects of getting older. But notice, and all Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now, I don't want to deal with this in a long time, but Ramah's on the east side of the Ephraim land grant, and this has been his home. We've seen that over and over again. Perhaps note the phrase, all Israel assembled and mourned. Now, I have to be careful. That certainly doesn't mean every single Jewish person throughout the 12 land grants traveled to Ramah. That is not what happened. But it probably means all of the tribal leaders and all the clan leaders, as well as the Levites. Undoubtedly, they would have all been involved. But it is the end of an era. Another way of putting it, the period of the judges is over. Samuel is the last and final judge of Israel, the beginning of the monarchy. Now, Saul was the first king, but you already know from our study, God rejected Saul and all that we detail. And now God is shaping and molding the first king of the Davidic monarchy, which, of course, is David. And the Davidic monarchy is, is centrally important in Scripture because the Davidic monarchy, of course, will produce Jesus, ultimately. So that era, it's, it's interesting that the author does this. It's one verse, it's short, boom, it's over. Then David rose and went down to the woman's Sopran. Now, the then connects us to verse 22 of chapter 24. David, if you might remember what had happened in chapter 24 in Engedi, that oasis on the west side of the Dead Sea, he was hiding there in a cave, and Saul came in to go to the bathroom. And all that we detailed last week, the time before we took our Christmas break. So the connection of the then is to what happened at the end of chapter 24. When the, and I told you this just to remind you, the term stronghold at the end of verse 22, I'm reading from the ESV, that's how they translate that, is Masada. 
And I think you all heard of Masada. Masada is that it's a, a small mesa, small plateau on the west side of the uh, of the Dead Sea, an extremely barren area, but it was a refuge. And that's where David was holed out. So when he goes to the wilderness of Paran, uh, I could draw a map or you can look on a map, but here is Masada on the west side of the, of the Dead Sea. He goes into Judah. He was in the southern part of Judah. So he basically goes in a northwesterly direction. The wilderness of Paran is in Judah. Why is he there? David is in Judah, and what he's doing is two, twofold. He, one, is building his political base of support. He is of the tribe of Judah, which I think you all know that. David is of the tribe of Judah, so he naturally goes back into his home land grant, so to speak. So he's building his place, and he's also protecting the farmers and the shepherds, the herders of animals in southern Judah. Uh, because Judah, Judah is basically, uh, on the east side, is a very mountainous area. Uh, for example, Jerusalem, which is just north in the actual land grant of Benjamin, but nonetheless about 2,500 feet above sea level. The farther west you go, the lower it gets, and then you're in the hills, and you get close to the coast is where farming occurs. There isn't a lot of farming in the, in the tri- tribal land grant of Judah. There is, there is mountainous where the towns and cities are, but there's also then where the sheep herders and the, the herders of animals are. David is there protecting these people from the Philistines because they continue to make punitive raids into the tribe, uh, tribal land grant of Judah. I'm telling you all that because you must understand uh, that because that's why David goes to Nabal and asks for food because he's protecting these people for quite a period of time. Are you with me on that? So I want you to understand why David's doing what he's doing and why he then has that right to ask for help. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel way up along the coast. It's way up north. This is a little village in Judah. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. Nabal is Hebrew for fool. I'm always struck by this. Can you imagine a mother and father giving birth to a little boy and they name him fool? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, we don't know anything about him other than that, but that is his name. That's what it means. His wife's name was Abigail. The woman This is really an important statement. The woman was discerning. The Hebrew word that's translated discerning or discernment as a noun is one of the words in the the wisdom literature about Proverbs, Psalms, for wisdom. It's one of the wisdom words of the Bible. So another way you could say this woman was wise. She was a very wise woman and beautiful. But the man, notice the contrast, was harsh and badly behaved. And then the author adds one other piece of information. He was a Calebite. Now, you remember Caleb? Remember who he is? He, along with Joshua, had been sent, along with 10 others, way back right after the Exodus occurred to go into the land of Canaan, check it out because they're about to enter. You remember? 12 came back. 12 came back. 10 said, we can't go up there. There are giants in the land. We'll never succeed in conquering them. But Joshua and Caleb say, let's go. 
And Caleb is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, as was Joshua. So what it's telling us is that within the land grant and tribe of Judah, there's a clan. That clan is attached to Caleb. So Nabal comes from a very good line in terms of his heritage. All right, now, I want to make one other comment here. When the text tells us that they were shearing sheep, this is a, um, this is a very festive time. And to some extent, it still is today if you ever go to the Middle East, because when you're, you're, you're shearing your sheep, that's your economic return. That's your, uh, that's your ROI for the year, the return on your investments. You've, you've taken care of them, you've heard them, now it's time to, to shear them, and then, of course, you would, would sell the, 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 the wool, etc. But it's a very festive time. It's usually associated with feasts, lots of celebration. And so David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. The festival, the, all of the trappings of celebration. It's like a, a winter, or excuse me, a fall harvest after all of the crops are harvested and so on. Well, this is the same thing, except it's dealing with animals. So what does David do? Now, again, I want to make sure, so I started the, the session this morning with that comment. David is in Judah, southern Judah, protecting the farmers, protecting the sheep herders, the, 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 the herders of animals from the Philistines. So he sends ten men to Nabal. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, that's where Nabal lived. Go to Nabal, greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace to be all you have. And remember, the Hebrew is shalom, shalom, shalom. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. We did them no harm. We've been protecting them. They miss nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Our protection of them means not one of your animals was lost to the Philistines. That's what David means by that. Ask your young man. They will tell you. So what David is just saying, look, we were... We were among your men as they're moving the herds around the different parts of the hills. We've been protecting them. Ask them. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David, no, <clears throat> Please note the language here. David is deferring to Nabal. He's, in effect, using language, I'm subordinate to you. So he's not demanding it. He doesn't send the guys down with swords and spears to take it. He's saying, we protected you all year. Can you share some of the bounty from the festival? We'd like some hot dogs and corn. That's a joke. <laughs> None of you are getting it. But anyway, if you, yeah, you know, I mean, just share, share with us. And again, the language is a language of deference. And he's, he's not demanding it. He's requesting it based on what he has done for him. So the issue is going to be, how is Nabal going to respond to this? Remember, what does the text say? He's harsh and foolish and doesn't do very, doesn't do things very well at all. 
He lives up to his name. Exactly. Exactly. When David's young men came, I'm in verse 9, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. What we just read, they repeated it, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, I added a little bit of tone and a little, little bit of, of, of uh, emotion to this as I embellished all this. This is the language of sarcasm. This is the language of insult. Nabal answered, There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Again, this is the language of it. He, he knows what David has done for him. But he's using the language of sarcasm and insult. I don't know you guys. I don't owe you anything. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to the men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, that's just reminding us that David has 600 loyal men. He built that army. We talked about that earlier. All of the those who had suffered under Saul and, and, and all that had been a part of, of the regime of Saul, they're now loyal to David. So 400 men go with David. Now, I don't know if you can think about that, but that is overkill. However, David is responding with vengeance. David is not acting as a potential king. There are a number of things that I want you to see here. God is trying to help David see something. And he's going to write about this in one of the Psalms. But it will be the agent of Abigail. In other words, he will be the instrument God will use. But one of the young men, this would be one of the young men of, of Nabal, one of his servants, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, well, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to get our master, and he railed at them. If the men were very good to us, and we have suffered no harm, we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. And the servant is just saying, listen, David's protected us in his men, as we've been talking. Verse 16, they were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. We don't know who this servant is. His name isn't given. But he's acknowledging the obvious. We didn't lose one animal to the Philistines. That we have had a prosperous shearing is due to David. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. He is such a worthless man. That can't one cannot speak to him. Now, this is one of the servants speaking about his boss. But it gives you the sense that he is a fool that corresponds with his name, is known even by those who work for him, so to speak. 
You can't even talk to this man. Now, how is Abigail going to respond to this? And what the text is doing in verses 19 through 22 is setting up a contrast between Nabal the fool and Abigail the wise. It's wisdom versus foolishness. I mentioned earlier when you read the text, the word is discern or discernment to make it into a noun. What does that mean? Abigail had insight into the consequences of our choices. That's what discernment means. And when it uses that term of her as a virtue of Abigail, a virtuous woman, having discernment, she had insight into the consequences of our choice. (coughs) So what does she do? Then Abigail made haste, and in verse 18, and took 200 loaves, meaning of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seahs, <coughs> measurement of, of, of things in the ancient world, approximately seven quarts per, per seah. So it's a fairly significant amount of parched grain and hundreds, hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. Now, when you just read through all of that in verse 18, what is she doing? She's, she's giving David what he requested. When David sent his men down to Nabal, we were protecting you guys this year. That's why you're having such a great harvest of your sheep as you're shearing them and so on. She's doing, she's giving David what he originally requested. Why is she doing that? That's the lesson David has to learn. Verse 19, and she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, verse 21, surely in vain have I guarded all that his fellow has in the wilderness. So that nothing we missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned evil for good. None of those statements are incorrect. They're absolutely correct. Verse 22. Why would that be correct if Abigail is responding? I mean, that's, that's David talking. It's a surely in vain. Well, it wasn't wasted on Abigail. Abigail hasn't happened yet. No, he hasn't met her yet. What the tech, all the text is saying is, this is David's, this is David's action in responding to, to Naboth. We did all this protecting of him for this past year in vain. Why did we do this? And now verse 22 is a curse formula in Hebrew. David is calling a curse upon Naboth. So God do so to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, you're all adult men, and I can say this. The Hebrew is, if by morning I leave so much, 
as one who urinates at a wall who belonged to him. It's a very derogatory, very demeaning way to refer to Nabal and his men. Because what has David just declared? I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out. And the, the language, honestly, it's, it's, it's a very demeaning way to refer to a man. I'm going to kill all who urinate at the wall. Women don't urinate at the wall. So he's not going to kill the women, but he's going to kill every man. We have no idea how many of this would have involved. But this is what this means is Nabal, all his servants, and all of those who shear the sheep. In a very real sense, David is putting the males of Nabal's household under the ban. He's going to annihilate all of them. Now, this is the question. We're going to step back now and kind of get the 100,000-foot view and ask a theological question. Is this justice or is this vengeance? It is not justice. David has every right to expect Nabal to support what he's done for him this past year. We've seen what David said. We see that the servant said to, to Abigail and Nabal's wife, that we are shearing all these sheep. We didn't lose one. It's due to David. He's protecting us. So what, what is Abigail going to do? Let's put it again, 100,000. Well, how is God going to use Abigail here? What is the lesson God wants David to learn through this? Well, let's look. She's an amazing woman. When you agree, she's a woman of courage. She's a woman, as we read earlier in the text, a woman of discernment, very clear. But she's also a woman of, of tact. T-A-C-T, you know what I mean by tact? I mean, she's really a remarkable woman. And it's amazing, every time I read this, I think, why did she ever marry him, you know? That's not a good fit. But, you know, often marriages are complementary where the man is very weak, the woman is very strong. Where the woman is weak, the man is very strong. Together they're much stronger than if they were apart. Maybe that's the case here. But this isn't a Hallmark moment. This isn't what you see on Hallmark movies. You know, this is not going to end up like a Hallmark movie where at the end the man the woman kiss and everything's going to be fine for all eternity. I say that because it just came up with my wife. It was really exciting. I want to watch Gladiator watching all my I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried down, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Deference. Respect. Honor. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. That is an astonishing statement. If you're going to kill somebody, kill me. Is she guilty? Of course not. But listen, as you're going to see, she is not thinking about her husband. She's thinking about David. If you do this, 
This will be a scar on your leadership. Look at how she frames it. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. He lives up to his name, fool. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as, notice her language, Yahweh lives. Lord, there's in uppercase letters, Yahweh. As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood, guilt. That's the key word. You see it here. You see it in verse 31. And you see it in verse 33. It's the key word. She wants to protect David from blood guilt. Your character will be forever stained by murdering my husband, by killing all his men. Two things about Abigail. Number one, she I don't know how she knew this. I, I would imagine it was fairly widespread among the, the people of the tribe of Judah that David was going to be the king. It had been, apparently spread fairly quickly that David had been anointed as the king. It certainly was true, they all would have known this, the story of him killing Goliath and so on. So she knew he was going to be king. And number two, she also knew that he was going to be a king that would be a shepherd king, Deuteronomy 17. She knew the law, and she sees something. David, David, think. If you kill my husband, if you murder my husband, that's really what he's going to do. And all of his men, and this is a legal term right out of the law, there will be blood guilt. You will be guilty of shedding blood. You will be guilty of murder. You will be violating one of the Ten Commandments of our God. And that's what she says. As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from the abundant, from saving with your own hand, that your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She is not looking particularly at the good of her husband. She's looking at what this will do to David. Why? Just <clears throat> discerning. That, that's it. I mean, it, it reflects, I think, that quality of discernment, insight into the consequences of your choices. That's why I said she, she apparently, again, fairly widely known in the tribe of Judah, that David was going to be the king, and that he would be a king according to Deuteronomy 17, which is how God framed the kingship of this or what the king was to be like. David, don't you understand that if you kill Nabal and all his men, do you understand what that's going to do to your role as king, his future king? Do you do not understand that? So, I mean, why, Fred, the only, I think the only answer to that, and Fred, in fact, the answer is the way the Bible is depicting it as a discerning, wise woman. She's seeing the consequences of what David's about to do. And she wants David to understand the consequences of what you're back. Now, look, 
Another way of saying this, what word would we use to describe David's actions at this point? Is David acting wisely or is David acting impulsively? He's acting impulsively. I mean, I totally understand it. I mean, I totally understand why David's doing this, and I probably would have done the same thing. I know none of you are far more righteous than I am. But I would, I would, I would, in my gut, I would say, he owes me. Look at what I've done for him. But Abigail is saying, David, step back. That's what discernment is. Step back and see the consequences of what you're about to do. What will this do to your leadership role as the shepherd king of Israel? She's a remarkable woman. She's in the right place at the right time for the right reason. And who is superintending all of this? God. God's doing this. This isn't, you know, as Chuck Swindoll says, if we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, we should never use the word coincidence, chance, randomness. We shouldn't use those words. If we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God. And so this remarkable woman, God is using to teach David discernment. David, you're going to be the leader. A leader is discerning. A leader has that quality of discernment, insight into the consequences of your choices. And a leader, especially the Deuteronomy 17 leader, needs that. Did you have a good friend? So you said you know, she's an intelligent woman, so she's obviously gone to, to synagogue and, and has heard the, heard the scriptures being read and, and, and understood and, and was able to, to put things together, and that's where, where her discernment, the source of her discernment. I would, I would assume that. We know so little about her background. One, one quick point, the synagogue system hasn't developed yet, but she would have been going to the Levitical city. Remember, there are 48 Levitical cities throughout the tribes. So she would have gone undoubtedly one of those. She would have heard the teachings. That's right. She would have known the law. And I mean, I think that's accurate to infer that. She would have known the law. So she's a remarkable woman. I mean, that's uh, it's one of the things in, in, the, in the scriptures, and you see it both in the New Testament with some of the, 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 the women who are the followers of Jesus. Luke 8 tells us that some of the disciples of Jesus were women. They traveled with Jesus among the 12. They, in addition, those women are listed there in Luke 8. Uh, women play a very crucial role in so much of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. We're the first people to see the resurrected Jesus. Women. And, uh, well, anyway, I'm way beyond the point. But she is one of the remarkable heroines of the Old Testament because she prevented David. God used her to prevent David doing something that would have tarred his character. Okay, can I go on here? Everybody okay online there? Anyway. All right, now, I forget where I left off. Uh, blood, guilt, saving, I read that, now verse 27. Now, let this present, meaning what we read about in verse 23 and so on, let this present... That your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. You ask Nabal for some food, so give it to the guys. Verse 28. 
Notice this incredible language. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. Now, when Abigail is referring to my Lord, who's she referring to? To David. He's, you're my Lord. She understands he's going to be the king. And she is, she is being used by the Lord. And I want you to note that appeal. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Please forgive the trespass of Nabal. Because, David, there's so much at stake here. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. The Hebrew word for house means dynasty. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil should not be found in you as long as you live. And so this, this dear lady is summarizing some of the tenets of the Deuteronomy 17 view of the monarchy. David, there's so much at stake here. Instead of vengeance, forgiveness. If the men rise up, verse 21, to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What is she doing? In verse 29, she is summarizing. God has destined you to be king. He's going to take care of you and your enemies. And, you know, you know the, the slingers were part of the, of the ancient Near Eastern armies. We've talked about that before. God's going to put them in a sling and sling them away. So God's going to take care of your enemies. David, act wisely, not impulsively. And she's reminding David, you're going to be the king, and God's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you and protect you. He's going to take care of your enemies. This woman is a remarkable woman that God uses to teach David, a very important lesson about leadership. Verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel. Again, she understands that David's destiny is to be the king. Verse 21, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood. It's the same word we read back in verse 26, same word in Hebrew, blood guilt, without cause from the Lord taking vengeance upon himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remembers. David, don't do this. Everything about your character as the king is at stake here. A king knows when to forgive and not be motivated by vengeance. God's going to take care of your enemies. 
there was a movie that uh, this king was attacked by some long and he pinned his neck down on the road. He had a sword, and his associate said, You are the king, you can kill. And he said, Because I am the king, I will let him go. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I just think of Christ being that person that allows us to live. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. All right. Everybody with me? Online, everybody okay? Here we go. How's David going to respond? Is, let's, let's, let's put it in spiritual language. Is God going to melt his heart? Through the agency of Abigail. Where her words changed David's character. Will Abigail's words be used by God to deepen his faith and trust in God? David said to Abigail, notice the language. Blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. That is marvelous, man. David responds with the covenant title of God. The covenant title of, of this is the this is the, the title that Israel uses. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. He's a covenant making, covenant keeping God. Blessed be him who sent you to me this day to meet me. God sent you. Oh, that's wonderful. All of a sudden, David's anger and his vengeance is melted away, and he sees beautifully the sovereignty and providence of God. God sent you to me to stop me from doing something that would marred my character, affected my monarchy, and I would have carried it with me the rest of my life. Blessed be your discretion. And David uses a different Hebrew word for wisdom. Discernment is one wisdom word. Discretion is another one. Blessed be you who have kept me this day. Here's the third time that term is used. Blood guilt. And from avenging myself with my own hand. God used you. You, in effect, you were a messenger from God to prevent me from doing something that I would have carried for the rest of my life, that would have affected my role as leader. For surely as, and there's that covenant title again, as Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you are hurried, and had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would have been not left to Nabal as much as one male. I was going to kill them all. Then David received from her hand what she had brought, all the food and stuff that we read about earlier. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. In other words, shalom in your house. You're safe. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to kill the servants. 
not going to kill the sheep herders, and not going to kill Naboth. God used you to prevent me from acting vengefully. I am going to leave, in effect, this is what he's saying. I'm going to leave Naboth in the hands of God. So I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. I've heard what you've gone to say. You've convicted me. God has used you, me, used you to melt my heart to do what God wants me to do. I've learned a lesson of kingship. And Abagel came to Nabob in verse 36, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Now remember, the shearing of sheep was a big festival time, and that's what's going on. It isn't a special party or anything, it's just part of that. And Nabob's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, meaning the, the sun is rising, in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became like stone. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. A number of years ago, I was teaching this in another class, and in that class there were a number of doctors, and one of the doctors came up to me and said, Nabal died from Takotsubo syndrome, stress heart syndrome. And I wrote it down and put it on a piece of paper and taped it to my notes. So if that's of importance to you, he died from stress heart syndrome. But what does the Bible say? The Lord took him. Now you see what you see what's happened here. The law says. Yahweh declares, vengeance is mine, I will repay. A king acts out of justice, not vengeance. David learned that lesson that day from Abigail, the instrument of God. He acknowledged that. We already read it. And God took care of Naboth. He died of stress heart syndrome, if my medical doctor friend is correct. Friend, I don't know, is that right? That's what this guy told me. Okay. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and kept back his servant, meaning him, David, from wrongdoing. And did you notice the language? Echoing in David's mind is what the law says. Yahweh says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We are motivated by justice, not vengeance. That's why in the law, God set up the, they're called the cities of refuge. Remember those? There are three on the, side, on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan to deal with these things, with families or clans or whatever. Uh, things like that occur. This is this is such a, a profound lesson that David is learning here about leadership, about his character, and about his faith. And David is the king, and now he's the future king. But David, he cannot act in these 
is the instances within his kingdom. I'm not talking about an enemy who attacks his kingdom, where he's defending the kingdom. He's ta I'm talking about in the interpersonal things. I act with justice, not vengeance. God has the right to avenge, and he will do that, either within time or within eternity. And so he, it's just a, it's an amazing it's an amazing lesson that God Yahweh. I mean, the end of verse forty nine thirty nine there, Yahweh has returned evil on Nabal on his own. God took vengeance. Now this is a very interesting verse. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Which is really interesting. The Bible does not comment on this. The Bible doesn't say anything about he should have done this or he shouldn't have done it. It doesn't make any moral or ethical evaluation of it. It just says he sends a text to Abigail. Hey, Abby, I'm thinking about taking you as my wife. What do you think? I made that up. That's not exactly what happened. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Abigail hurried and rose and found the donkey and her five women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And in verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, Jezreel is a little town up in the valley of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. You might remember this takes us back to an earlier chapter. So at this point, David has three wives, but Michal, who is this daughter of Saul, Saul, in vengeance against David, gave her to another man, even though she was promised to David, and was David's wife, and spent time and slept with David. But Saul, so David has three wives. Again, the Bible doesn't comment on this. The Bible makes no moral or ethical evaluation of this. But what ordinance of God does it violate? Marriage. Yes, the creation ordinance of God in Genesis 2, marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his parents, his mother and father, and cling, like glue, the Hebrew word, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's marriage ordinance, the very first institution God creates, is monogamous, heterosexual, and permanent. And what do you see so many of the leaders of the Old Testament do? Violate that. And so what do the narratives of the Old Testament show us? If you choose to violate that, you will live with the consequence. Let's think of Jacob. Let's think of Abraham. Remember, we studied that a number of years ago. Sarah's the covenant wife to give birth to the covenant son. She says, 
Abraham, God is not going to give us a son. I'm old, you're old. Take my servant, Hagar, and have a son through her. And Abraham says, no, God made a promise to me. I will follow his promise. You're going to be the covenant. That's not what he does. They're okay. So he takes Hagar, and what happens? Ishmael. In the Middle Eastern conflict is born. All the Bible, see, this is what's really interesting. The Bible doesn't make a moral or ethical evaluation. The Bible just says, if you don't follow the creative ordinance of God, you will live with the consequences. And you see it over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament narrative. And so all the Bible is saying, and it, again, it's just setting us up. David has a little bit of a problem. And a little bit of a problem could be summarized in this way. When he sees a beautiful woman, he takes her. It's setting us up for what's going to happen in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now we're quite a way from that yet in David's life in terms of chapters as well as years. But it's just telling us something. And it's it to me it's always interesting that what the Bible does here, and the Holy Spirit's the one who inspired these writings, is just telling, here are the facts of David's life. Now you're going to see in the rest of David's life the consequences of him doing this. And they're not positive. Consequently, though, in verse 42, so Abigail hurried. She didn't even take a second thought. I'm on the way. Do you expect me to comment on that, Fred? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's right. I mean, she is, um, she's not resisting this. She's not rejecting it. Uh, She accepts it, and apparently... How she was sold into the first marriage. Yeah. Well, and she's finding well, both of them are a little quick of eye. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, she, in one sense, her husband is dead. She would not be violating nope. anything. But there is, you know, it's just interesting how she's responding to this. She too. also knows he's going to be the next king. Mm-hmm. And dumb. Yeah. <laughs> she's discerning. He will end up with ultimately six, uh, several. We don't know hardly anything about them, but I have in, uh, and I use it, and I maybe will give it to you when we get into the book of Second Samuel. I have the genealogical tree of, of David and all the different kids that are born because it, once David commits the, the sin with Bathsheba and all that, then this inter, intergenerational problems with his kids, the one who's the daughter of one wife or the son of one wife, Tamar and Absalom, for example. And then Amnon, the daughter, the son of another one of his wives, rapes. And that just, you're seeing this mess of this family. And of course, that's ultimately what will lead to the rebellion, civil war with Absalom and all that stuff. Well, anyway. That, Back then, though, she wouldn't have inherited all. It would be doubtful. Really so doubtful maybe, that she would. There was an opportunity. Well, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's all of that is a part of it. He is dead. I mean, Nabal, her husband, is dead. 
Because the sons, right? Yeah, would, yeah I mean, primogeniture was the stand. The eldest son inherits all the father, the mother. That's why in the ancient world, and that's really, that's the case up until really the 19th century. This changed. If you've read, maybe your wives have read it, if you any, read any of the books of Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, that's what it's about. The destitute state of women. If you, if you, if you know um, Pride and Prejudice, there was a, a distant cousin that was going to inherit all of Jane, uh, all of, uh, I forget the girl in Pride, but they're going to inherit all that. And he, these girls are sitting there. We won't get anything. So it was very important for women to be able to marry because otherwise they would be, that's why the Bible says so much about orphans and widows. There was no social security system. There was no protection. Primogeniture and entail was the standard in the ancient world. Jim, uh, one other question. Um, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he had six wives. And, uh, not just that, but how, does, how does that happen? Was it a perpetual repentance when he recognized? His son, and he asked God to forgive him. What, what, what lies at the foundation of David being a man after God? What well, is that? You see that in David's, and you see it in the 72 Psalms that he writes. The repentant, contrite heart of David. When he realizes what he's done, uh, has hurt the Lord, or defied the Lord's commands or whatever it is. His default response isn't defensiveness. His default response is a repentant, contrite heart. You saw that in contrast to Saul, who there is no evidence of contrition in his life at all, whereas with David there is. And the other aspect of this too, Fred, is which is, of course, the key characteristic of God in his relationship with human beings is the grace of God. God deals with us in grace. And even, even when we do not always do things that are honored to him or that even defy him in terms of his moral law, he's still gracious toward us, still forgiving toward us. He will discipline. David discipline. excuse me, God is disciplining David over and over and over and over again. The, the key word discipline means training, and the, the key word there, and that's what God is doing. And so God uses these foolish, stupid, sinful things that we choose to do ultimately to sh sharpen and hone and equip us for what he wants us to do. And that's grace. As I've said, you've heard me say that if God dealt with us only on the basis of his justice, there would be absolutely no hope for us. None. I don't care who you are. But God does not deal with us only on the basis. Ultimately, he solves that issue at the cross. The justice of God and the grace of God intersect at the cross. And how he can so marvelously provide for us in that way. But I wanted to, and we did it, the, the hour is basically over. I wanted to spend the whole hour on this chapter. This is a really important chapter in so many ways. In God developing David's character and deepening David's faith, he says, the Lord sent you to me, Abigail. The Lord is the one who prevented this from happening to me. 
The Lord is the one that accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. And as a king, future king, I need to know this. And it's a tremendous, uh, just a tremendous chapter. That's why I want. Now, next week, we'll get into chapter 26, where David has another opportunity to kill Saul. And he will do it this time. No, he won't. What time are you So we'll see what happens. Father, thank you for the, the simple fact that you deal with us on the basis of your grace and your mercy. The psalm says, say, your mercy endures forever. Your loving kindness, the chesed, your loyal covenant love endures forever. You are a gracious God, a merciful God. And ultimately, of course, what we just celebrated last week, Christmas, is the, is the perfect illustration of that in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, the defining aspect of that. You sent your son to solve our problem. You graciously provided a way back to you. He graciously provided a substitutionary death so that Jesus would pay the penalty that we should pay so that we then can enjoy an eternal relationship with you. We give you praise. Thank you for just uh, the way in which you're teaching and honing and sharpening and shaping the life of David to be the king. Little instances like this are extremely important in what you're doing in developing his character and deepening his faith. May we be men of God who are allowing you to shape our character, allowing you to deepen our faith. Lord, you're a trustworthy God. You're a God who keeps your promises. You're a God that's dependable. You'll never leave us. You'll always be with us. Help us to live that way because we live in a world where people do not live that way. There's chaos. There's dysfunction. But we represent you. Help us to do that well. Bless these men here in the room as well as online. Give them your grace. May they represent you well in your son's name. We pray. Mm -hmm. See you next week.